Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater Hello. and Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the cost of living crisis, NATO's northward expansion, Netflix takes on its woke staff and the Wagatha Christie trial. So the economic news just gets grimmer and grimmer by the day. In the UK, inflation has hit 9% on the consumer price index. We're expecting it to reach double digits soon. The Bank of England governor was talking to MPs this week and he warned of apocalyptic rises in food prices. We know that there's an energy crunch. We're having the worst energy shock since the 1970s. I mean, Tom, this is just getting worse and worse, isn't it? Yes. And I think one of the things that's um, incredibly dispiriting about that is that there's this real fatalism as to what we could possibly do in the Mm. face of all this. It's understandable on one level because a lot of this is about external shocks, about external events. You can't very well blame Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak for the war in Ukraine or the pandemic. Obviously, the lockdown measures were very punishing, but you know the whole world essentially pursued those policies. But I think there's also a refusal to reckon with the kind of longer term factors which have led us to this particular place. I mean, you wrote about this on Spike this week, but these, this storm, this perfect storm mm. would have been a lot easier to weather if um, productivity and wages hadn't been stagnating for so long. This energy crisis we find ourselves in, we left ourselves very exposed to because of the fact that we essentially prioritise green virtue signalling over keeping the lights on, over keeping energy cheap and reliable, um, again, or even to the extent of blocking investment in crucial infrastructure, not allowing fracking in effect. And again, letting nuclear just sort of dwindle. Um, And it's only really getting a look in now when it's kind of far too late to really help anything in the near term. And the only thing that you can hope is it's going to be very difficult for people. I think that to the extent that the the government can help those most exposed to this, I think they should obviously be, they should obviously be duty bound to do so. But at the same time, you can only hope that we're going to have a much bigger reckoning with how we ended up in this situation in the first place. Mm. I think the difficulty is that a lot of the uh, inaction, a lot of the risk aversion, a lot of the weddedness to green dogma over basic bread and butter issues of looking after people in your own country, um, this is shared across the political class. That sense of fatalism, that sense of inaction, um, you can apportion blame for that everywhere in Westminster you would hope that a, a crisis of this scale would shock them out of it. Um, it doesn't ha- hasn't really shown any indication of doing so at the moment, but I think that's why the um, the onus is really on, on the public and on people in politics to kind of politicise this discussion mm. again, um, to suggest that the government isn't helpless in the face of these issues and that we st- need to start having a proper conversation about addressing the decay in the system, if you like. And although it might not help us and it might not help households in the months ahead, it will certainly um, help fortify us against the next crisis. One, one of the things that's been most shocking has been the kind of complacency, especially in the in, in the past few months. I mean, if you take just one factor that's brought us here, like the lockdown, you know, people were quite triumphalist about the fact that, um, you know, the furlough schemes and the business support schemes had tidied us through and they and they had to a certain extent. But it was believed that we'd almost got away with it that there was this very strange view that almost 18 months of on-off shutdowns of factories, of supply chains, of you know power plants was not going to have any kind of long-term economic effect. So even recently, you'd have 
government ministers boasting about this this wonderful recovery we were going into you know we've got the highest growth in the G7 you'd often you'd often hear ministers say and now it's just blindingly obvious that we are you know paying the price for that and that's just one of these areas so you're right Tom I think it, it, it's got to shake people out of their complacency it's got to get people to wake up and really think about you know what is fundamentally wrong in in the economy and where things need to change Ella and I think the problem is that the Conservative Party and indeed the Labour Party, not suggesting it would be better under a Labour government, but the Conservative Party is inherently incapable of doing, of meeting that challenge. Um, they are, you know, ideologically not able to think about reshaping the economy in any kind of meaningful way. Um, they ha- They keep sort of making these sort of pronouncements that, in a, you know, whether or not they're sort of a symptom of Johnson boosterism and a kind of sort of a fake half, we're all in this together, to use the George Osborne quote, on the one hand, but also then kind of suggesting that they're changing and they're giving a handout to poor people, you know, 200 quid here, 200 quid there. They're not able to think about the big picture. And the lockdown is really important because sure, no one planned a virus that was going to um, challenge the every country in the entire world. But I've said it before and I'll say it again, Rishi Sunak has been given too much of an easy ride because mm. yes, he made some good decisions, but on the whole, the government, informed by his economic policy, made some very, repetitively made some very bad decisions. And it's not just disruption to supply chains, it's also the fact that if you have everything hinging on very precarious systems of, you know, all the sort of talk about just in time and all that sort of stocking issues, then two years of disruption is going to have 10 years of a lasting effect. Um, And they could have made different decisions about shutting down society, even things on a smaller level, like keeping people away from work. I mean, again, I've I've said a million times, say it again, furlough was not a holiday for people, for most people, particularly on lower um, incomes. It was a 20% pay cut that changed, fundamentally changed the way they lived their lives. But the other thing is, you know, you do, you can't help but get annoyed when they roll out ministers like the safeguarding minister, Rachel McLean, um, earlier this week, who, you know, or whether it's Theresa Coffey previously said, you know, people just need to earn more money. Rachel McLean came out this week and said, uh, people just need to, you know, people people really just need to get better jobs and, you know, and, and then they'll have more money. And you think, no shit, Sherlock, everybody mm. wants a better job and more money. And all the commentators everywhere said, this is disgusting. How dare you? It's almost like victim blaming and all that kind of stuff. But in actual fact, no one said she's right. People do want better jobs. They would like to work, you know, fewer hours for more money, have a job that isn't just lasting the zero hours contract of that day, but 10 years, you know, job progression, a proper job, skills, blah, blah, blah. Of course, people want that. The question isn't that they're not going for it. The question is, why isn't the government providing that? Why isn't there the kind of economic um, upsurge or potential for people to access that those kind of resources? And you just can't help but thinking that since the financial crash, which was you know 14 years ago, we have had nothing but either fl- kind of fluctuating between stagnation and downturn. Mm. And you know, someone has to answer for that. Definitely. And, you know, you're talking about these kind of rows over 
essentially the kind of uh, usual punch and Judy politics mm. of uh, you're out of touch, you don't, yeah. you know, that or Labour would take us back to the 1970s, all, the, all that kind mm -hmm. of rubbish. I mean, and a lot of it kind of taken quite wildly out of context as well. I mean, yeah. even that minister's comments seem to be kind of, which was kind of talking in the broader context of what we need to do in the longer term is make yeah. sure people have these blah, blah, blah. But, you know, people who can hold forth against <laughs> the spreading of fake news, etc. suddenly leapt on it and were like, well, she's just telling people to do this and do that. It's a bit of a replay of the Lee Anderson thing, but even yeah. more excessive, I dare say. I mean, how do you, how do, how do you think that that kind of, um, almost a kind of culture war plays into, into this, Tom? Because, yeah, there, there is this um, sort of fight between, I don't know, you, you do just get this sense that um, people are talking about poor people like they're just suffering, the, mm. the government is being mean to them, yeah. um, they're totally helpless, uh, you know, and, and uh, where does that lead us? There's a real lack of seriousness in the discussion, definitely, because I think there's just a willingness to, again, as you say, play into the normal Westminster Punch and Judy show um, to try and just present it's just these top hat wearing Tories who are fundamentally out of touch. Um, and of course they're out of touch, but everyone in politics is pretty out of touch. I mean, it's, <laughs> and it, we get away from what are quite fundamental structural issues um, that have been going on in this country for a very long time. It takes us 50 years to try and fail to build a runway. Yeah, We are fundamentally structurally incapable of building enough houses for our own citizens to live in. Um, we have got it into our heads that it's a noble thing to make energy more expensive mm. for the greater good. And I think this particular crisis has been a, a good lesson in the fact that when energy prices really go up, it's catastrophic across society. Yeah, <laughs> there's, no, yeah. there's no winners apart from maybe some of the energy companies who've been having a nice time of it recently in that kind of scenario. It needs to shake us out of all of that. And so this incredibly old-fashioned discussion that's kind of taken place between suggesting that the Tories are just, you know, again, tinnied and all the rest of it. Of course, they're tinnied, but still, it's not really getting to grips with the scale of the crisis that we're looking at because all sides of politics are in one way or another implicated in the fact that the, that not only is politics wedded to a, to a bunch of very punishing orthodoxies, mm. um, but also just there's this, this system is just generally incapable of delivering for people and has been for a very long time. Um, I know there's been this tendency on the left to say, well, this is what um, we should have been talking about whilst the Tories were banging on about women's toilets and things like this, which I find it's just an, an attempt to kind of dodge those questions. It's not yeah. a serious engagement with the issues that are going on. And to the extent that the, the culture war, which is serious and is real, and as we've talked about many times, has a real impact on, on people's standing in society, on services, on women's spaces, et cetera, it's an important issue. To the extent that it does interact with these broader economic questions and the broader question of the public's place in, in democratic politics, um, it's been the other side of the culture war who've been constantly been demonising ordinary people, yeah. who have suggested that you shouldn't listen to them, um, who treat them as objects rather than subjects, who to the extent to which um, people on the woke left actually really care or have any engagement with working class people is just to treat them as kind of passive victims of, um, again, sort of Tory meanness. There's no kind of sense of giving them agency and all the rest of it. So to the extent that these two things do interact, um, it doesn't. It's not the slam dunk that these people think it is when mm. they say that. Well, we've been spending too much time talking about the culture war and not enough time talking about the things that matter. Um, that ordinary people have been bought off by this whole discussion. I think, if anything, there's a lot of blame on their side for either distracting us from some of the things that matter or undermining the role of ordinary people 
in public life more broadly, which has essentially been their project over the course of the past 10 years or more. <laughs> Distraction is a good word, though, because it, I mean, it does go both ways, because while I'm all here for slating the Labour Party for not knowing what a woman is, and I do, we, we've said many times on this podcast, it's not just a silly question. It reveals a fundamental lack of honesty and all the rest mm. of it within that party. Um <clears throat> But there's only so many times I can listen to Boris Johnson kind of bleat across PMQs um, at Keir Starmer at any question he's asked saying, well, you don't know what a woman is. <laughs> and it's like, well, we know that they're crap. And yeah, most, yeah. most of us, that's why, one, that's why they're not in government. Um, and two, you know, the, most of the discussion is about why the Labour Party is losing voters left, right and centre. What do you think? You know, you answer the question, not on, not on women, but on the cost of living crisis, on housing. You and you know the Conservative Party has sold itself in 2019 as you know leveling up and blah blah blah. Or the party of not quite of the working class, but you know of Brexit, of new opportunity. And then you have you know big issue and for example housing. And Michael Gove's big idea that he comes out with is not not they're going to meet the housing the building targets. No, no, sorry, we're, we're probably not going to do that. Sorry. But we have got this really exciting idea about holding referendums where, you know, individual citizens in a, in a neighbourhood can decide whether or not they get to build a house or build an extension. And, you know, is that out of touch? Yeah, it's out of touch. But it's something more fundamental, which is that it's not just that they're being tinnered, it's that they have no interest. And this is why I'm saying that neither the Conservative or Labour Party are ever going to meet any of our needs or aspirations for the economy or anything else. They have no interest in fundamentally changing things. And this is an incredibly depressing picture. <laughs> I don't know what to say to people, but something's got to give. And whether that's, you know, looking at trends like the Gilets Jaunes, something positive like that about, I think people need to start talking about what's going on. And, you know, Martin Lewis, the sort of um, economist who's all over the, the uh, broadcast waves all the time saying that he's worried about civil unrest, which might be an exaggeration, but I think a little bit of something of people kind of coming out and saying, hang on a minute, my energy bill is going to go up by two, you know, up to 2,600 £2, pounds. Yeah, yeah. This is not okay. You know, <laughs> some kind Doing something like that, I think might be on the cards for the future. And if it makes politicians wake up, then so be it. This, this housing thing is interesting because it just gets to the heart of how much government policy is just tinkering, mm. especially the whole levelling up agenda. It encompasses everything from, you know, cleaning up graffiti to more money for grassroots football. Yeah. You know, the, so much of climate policy is about installing things like smart meters and yeah. making sure, you Which know... Which have screwed people over, by the <laughs> yeah. way. I've just, got one. It's terrible. <laughs> just, the, just all these, like, tiny little interferences and nudges in your life yeah. rather than addressing... What is the fundamental problem? We don't produce enough energy in a reliable and cheap mm. enough way. We don't build enough houses that people want to live in where they live in. And our economy is not producing the high paying, secure jobs that people deserve. Mm. But, you know, will we ever get there? <laughs> I won't hold my breath. Just another thing on the, the whole culture war thing. So I think it is tempting even for people on our side of that argument to kind of suggest well, reality has kind of come back to bite us now. Maybe mm. we'll stop talking about microaggressions. Maybe this will win the culture for, war for us, or it will demonstrate that the culture war is kind of just a bunch of nonsense people arguing against about Ben and Jerry's latest press release aimed at Pretty Purcell or something, rather than talking about what matters. I think it's important to know that um, the culture war is so important because I think it's the way that you get towards some of the issues that matter as well. You kind of have to win the culture war yeah. as, a, as a means to sorting out these other issues in some respects, just because of the fact that 
even, you know, aside from, again, the kind of the genuine material questions that the culture war often um, involves, it's also been part and parcel of just the demonization and the dismissal of ordinary people. Um, you see that in the kind of woke discussions. You also see it in the kind of whole Brexit discussion. And one of the heartening things that's happened since Brexit is that um, it repoliticized a lot of areas of public life, even in relation to the economy to a certain extent. The way yeah. in which the Tory party moved and tried in this very incomplete, sloganistic fashion to try and capture a sense of needing to address the economic concerns of um, working class people, quote unquote, left behind areas, a grating phrase, but nevertheless was getting at something, was a direct consequence of the working class vote in this country um, backing Brexit in 2016 and then moving towards the Tories in 2017 and then very spectacularly in 2019. That's really what put their concerns on the agenda in a way that hadn't existed previously, having spent many years, but particularly the last couple of years, just being depicted as a bigoted throng who shouldn't really be allowed to have any say over the sway of their own nation. So it's I see this I see the kind of battle to kind of repoliticize the economy and to just and to win the cultural war, not to dismiss it as kind of complementary mm. in many respects, because it's about returning ordinary people to the center of political life, really. Um, and that's something which is becoming even more important at a time when we're in these incredibly punishing economic circumstances. One thing I never want to stop doing is learning about the world. And my go-to favorite place to discover new things is Wondrium. Wondrium is a video subscription service which has content on just about any topic. To give you an example, I've just watched one of Wondrium's latest series called The Triumph of Christianity, and I think you'll love it too. If you've ever wondered about how Christianity developed from an obscure Jewish sect in an outpost of the Roman Empire, to spread throughout the West and become the world's dominant religion, then this is the series for you. Over 24 fascinating episodes, The Triumph of Christianity takes you on a journey of discovery. It has episodes on the historical Jesus, the persecutions of early Christians, and the conversion of Emperor Constantine 300 years later, when Christianity finally became the religion of Rome. And you can watch it now on Wondrium. Wondrium is focused on helping us become better versions of ourselves. You can explore audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors. You can watch documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you. And you can find video tutorials that teach you new hobbies like photography, cooking and arts and crafts. All of Wondrium's content is world-class and credible. It's presented by experts who all know their stuff. And it's always ad-free. I want you to sign up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering Spiked Podcast listeners and viewers a free trial plus 20% off an annual plan. To get this offer, you need to visit our special URL, wondrium.com slash spiked. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Sign up today. Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO. Now, this would represent a, a major kind of overturning of European security architecture. It would be the biggest NATO expansion in decades, and it would expand NATO's border with Russia uh, by double, essentially. Tom, this is a kind of world historical event, another consequence of the war in Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. What have you made of it? It's hard to overstate significance. I mean, as many people have pointed out, you know, these are two historically non-aligned 
countries. Um, mm. Finland, for many, many decades, of course, invaded by the Soviets in 1939, fought them off, but ever since then, out of a kind of sense of pragmatism and concern about kind of Russian reprisals, has maintained the sort of military non-aligned status. Sweden's essentially been non-aligned for best part 200 years. Yes, I mean, it's the Napoleonic Wars, essentially. In, so to, to, you know, this incredible shift, you know, this, that particular policy lasted two world wars and the cold war mm. and yet now things are shifting um obviously you had the inevitable response from russia which is to say that there are consequences but of course this is the obvious consequence of their own actions i yeah. mean you know what whatever you think of nato we've obviously talked about uh, spent a lot of time discussing it on this show and the, the folly of of um its expansion over many years and its role in at least creating some of the circumstances for the tensions that we've seen boiling over but at the end of the day that the the image of russia warning about consequences from a, a essentially a defensive move on behalf of um, two countries is really appalling in a situation where they feel like their own offensive moves should have no consequences whatsoever. So yeah. they've got to, they've got to realize that. Although it's interesting to see that after some more bellicose rhetoric, you've had Vladimir Putin kind of suggesting that um, if there is to be a response, it's going to be a lot more kind of mild than the original sort of statements might have actually been. They're not kind of, you know, former Soviet republics or anything like that. But nevertheless, I think it's, it's a, it's a complicated issue because on the one hand, it's entirely understandable why Sweden and Finland have done this. They're trying to work out what's in their best national interest. Public support, particularly in Finland, has um, exploded in favour of um, NATO um, ascension. I mean, it was it was around 20% not that long ago, and now yeah. it's like 75%. So it's, there's a clear public demand for this. Also, their forces were quite well integrated or cooperating, at least with NATO, for a very long time. It's not as big a jump as it might seem. Um, but there is something depressing about it insofar as it's the solidifying and of the tensions that exist, you know, mm. of this kind of bifurcation of the world, um, of the, it's just kind of making all of that formalized now. Um, and that's something which is really regrettable, even as much as we recognize that the spark for it was a completely unjustified and barbarous invasion of Ukraine. Um, you just wish, you know, that it wasn't thus, but you can understand why those countries have taken that move. Definitely. Ella, I mean, it shows a huge kind of, even putting aside the moral, you know, problems of invading Ukraine, but what a huge strategic error this was for Putin, someone who for his entire time in power has complained about um, NATO expansion, and he has now been the catalyst of a very large NATO expansion. Yeah, I think it's a complete miscalculation on the one hand of how strong Russia was. And we know that militarily he's um, uh, underestimated the ability of Ukraine to be able to withstand the invasion and fight back. But also politically in terms of, even if you take something as superficial as Eurovision um, Song Contest, which Rob Lyons wrote about this week, you know, as as much as that is a kind of pantomime, ridiculous event, and also so kind of subtle uh, political messaging that goes on within that, there was a not so subtle political message of Ukraine's win, which, you know, as Rob pointed out, you know, Putin cares about these kind of sporting and cultural events and showing off. And to see essentially the, you know, the entirety of the competition come behind the country that he is invading and base, as he put it, you know, send a, um, a very serious two-fingered salute to Russia is, is, is again, I think part of his miscalculation. I think, mm. I didn't think, I don't think he thought that people would rally around behind Ukraine or indeed that there was, I think he misjudged the sense of importance around sovereignty 
which I think maybe maybe a lot of us did because there was a, a point um, in the last few years where it looked like, particularly from Putin's point of view, but also from those of us sort of criticising anti-democratic moves that sovereignty was dead in the water. And it only if it had to take, you know, the invasion of Ukraine to wake up people to that significance, well, then that's a shame. But here we are. And, uh, and sovereignty is a very important issue and many countries like the UK and others have rallied around them in that way. But I think Tom's right, you know, you can do two things at the same time. And, you know, while it's completely understandable and a sovereign decision for Sweden and Finland to make these moves, um, and while we might, you know, question or ponder over the fact that they've made it now rather than Mm. World War II with the Nazis, <laughs> while it's sort of alarming to see, we, you, know, you know, a few weeks ago or even a month ago, we were talking about all the big changes in Germany. It's, the, it feels like this war is, yeah, Germany, is yeah. just kind of ripping up everything of the old rule book, which, you know, isn't always a bad thing. But at the same time, you can also say that in the long term, the bifurcation of these kind of conflicts, the uh, solidification of NATO as this good and moral thing that I think lots of commentators in a kind of superficial way talk about it is a problem. And we don't want to have a future in which you have a very intense, um, prolonged uh, sort of latent conflict between NATO forces and Russia. There's no sort of sense of how this is going to end, um, which is understandable when you're in the eye of the storm in the heat of war. But I think that does need to be recognised. And, you know, it's it's you're able to and it's possible to criticise NATO, at least keep a critical view on the long term consequences of these moves while saying, mm. yes, um, in the immediate in the immediate sort of sense, who knows what Russia will do? And if I was living in Finland in particular, I'd think yeah. join it. I mean, they're probably safe just by given the fact of how <laughs> overstretched Russia's military is at the particular moment. But yeah. as you can say, you can still understand it. There's also the danger, which we've we've seen um, many expressions of recently, is that the war in Ukraine and the quote-unquote rejuvenation of the West and of mm. NATO, etc., being a kind of means through which a very doddery US, um, perfectly represented by one Joe Biden, uh, trying to kind of burnish and kind of reclaim its sense of vitality on the world yeah. stage it's kind of hegemonic position and all the rest of it and that has consequences too you know through using this um this military alliance of course to kind of burnish its kind of uh power on the world stage also invites consequences as, and in terms of the kind of raising of the temperature which will continue to take place um so again it's uh you know we can lament these things whilst at the t- same time recognizing why sovereign nations have decided to go down this particular path considering the barbarism that is taking place effectively on their doorstep. How Woke Won, the brilliant new book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It's all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we, the public, can fight back. You can order your copy today by going to spiked-online.com forward slash shop. That's spiked-online.com forward slash shop. So, Staff at Netflix have been warned that they may have to work on shows and films that they could perceive to be harmful. And if, <laughs> and if they don't like it, they can leave. Now, this seems like a, a big moment in the world of Netflix, in the world of kind of woke Hollywood, where a lot of the time sort of woke staffers are indulged. I mean, we had the big protests at Netflix against Dave Chappelle. Um, Tom, what have you made of this? Is this the start of a fight back against wokeness? I think it's easy to overstate, I think that's fair <laughs> to say, with one memo that we're talking about. It's interesting that Netflix, in a very partial, not always consistent way, has 
been consciously pushing back against this and then sometimes backing off. I mean, the Chappelle thing was a good example. So Netflix's CEO, I believe, Ted Sarandos, around that time, he kind of made a relatively bold statement by the standards of kind of woke Hollywood (laughs) to say that we don't believe that um, Dave Chappelle's comedy contributes to real world harm and that people need to understand that. He later backtracked, obviously, suggesting what he'd said was a bit insensitive and blunt and all the rest of it. But then you see this memo again, which is uh, which is again an attempt to push back at what is obviously a clear problem. There is, And there's been a few pieces kind of swirling around talking about how, you know, maybe Hollywood just got too in on the, on the woke bandwagon too much that it has alienated people, that there is something of a recognition there. I think the problem is, is that it's a, it's a much deeper problem than what the policy of a particular organization is um it's broadly speaking a generational problem the Mm. pool of quote-unquote creatives or um people who work in the knowledge industries full stop as well as the creative industries across silicon valley across hollywood uh they're 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 a particular set of people with a particular set of cultural ideas with a particular experience in life who've gone through the same set of Ivy League or top tier institutions, they've been inculcated into this culture, mm. which suggests that words of violence, um, which just the worst thing you could possibly do is upset someone. Um, this is incredibly difficult to unpick. You can't fire all of them, presumably. Yeah. So that's that again kind of gets to gets to the grips of what we're looking at. And if it was just Netflix that we were talking about, then that would be one problem. But you know, we've seen this in the publishing industry. Mm. Uh, we've seen this in Silicon Valley, etc. That's one actually part of the big tech censorship discussion that doesn't always get quite picked up on is the fact that often when Mark Zuckerberg or formerly Jack Dorsey, whoever it was, would kind of who would engage in acts of censorship, it was often because they had acquiesced to their own staff as yeah. well as external pressures. You know, there was walkouts. There mm. was um, people again. Um, taking them to task at these little um, company-wide meetings that they would have. So it's quite internal problem. But um, given the fact that this is generational to a certain extent, and given the fact that this is a lot deeper than one organisation, to get so excited about one memo seems to me a little bit short-sighted. Although it is interesting that at least people at the top of these companies are starting to realise that this is harming them in some real way, their attachment and association with these dogmas, you know. (laughs) I mean, um, think of the publishing industry in particular, that seems to be one of the worst. I mean, you know, we've had Simon and Schuster, um, people saying they don't want to, to, staff saying they don't want to publish any books from anyone involved in the Trump administration mm. or, you know, Random House Canada staff allegedly crying over publishing Jordan Peterson's book <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, not quite uh, in, in journalism, the New York Times, Barry Weiss, you know, probably the, one of the mildest um, if if she is a contrarian, she's the mildest one out there mm. being forced out, essentially. Well, in, in particular, the publishing industry is such an elitist industry. I mean, mm. really, you don't get in there unless you either know someone. You, you might have a few token kind of pick a CV out of a pile to make sure that we don't get in trouble with, <laughs> you know, diversity um, officers. But it really is about who you know and what schools you've gone to and, you know, whether you tick the right upper middle class boxes. And so they're, you know, kind of... I think it's no surprise then that they, the people within this publishing industry who are either, you know, whether it's at Hachette or Penguin or pretty much everywhere has had some kind of staff walkout or complaint about a writer nine times out of 10, it will be, you know, either conservative or right-wing writer or someone who's talking about something anti-woke. It's not like they're publishing Mein Camp or anything. Um, It's just kind of stuff on the political controversy. Um, 
it's a real degradation of the sense of what workers' rights or industrial mm. action or anything yeah. that is really about. Because this isn't saying I'm unsafe in my workplace because you're making me work in a basement and there's no running water. <laughs> it's about saying you're, this book that I have to read and with my cushy job, which is just about reading lots of interesting books and deciding whether I like them or not, is actually mm. harming my emotional being. Yeah, and I think it's a worker's right not to be offended. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. And you think... Um, you know, do a night shift in Tesco and that might hurt your emotional well-being. I mean, Jesus Christ, there's a real sense of, there's a sort of unworldliness about it. But also it's really unfair for the reading public who don't have any power in this, who might want to read all different, do want to read all different kinds of books, by the way, because you see some of these books when they break through Art do go on to become bestsellers. For example, you know, people are still reading Harry Potter despite the fact that everyone has almost, you know, if they haven't yet, is on the brink of excommunicating J.K. Rowling. And we're being shut out by this very elitist industry, whether it be in Hollywood or in publishing. (laughs) And the whole thing about creatives, to use, you know, that word that has been completely bastardized, is it's meant to be about pushing boundaries and thinking outside of the box. They're meant to be the great minds that can think of innovative things that we lowly plebs can't think of. Mm. But (laughs) it doesn't Mm. seem like that because they're so narrow-minded and as Tom says, so stuck in their own very particular worldview and not very many exciting things come out of Mm. Ivy League sort of industries like that unless they think about something other than themselves and they seem incapable of doing that. You still get the sensitivity reader before the book comes out and the trigger warning once the TV show comes out and Mm. you know every every aspect of it seems to be um, curtailed in some mm. way. No, and I, I really agree with the point about to frame this as an issue of workers' rights is is sort of ridiculous. Not least because of the fact that while some people might shout the loudest, and obviously these people are very overrepresented in these particular industries, you know, if you're the member of staff who dissents from this orthodoxy, you're going to keep your mouth shut. Mm. If you're a smaller author or a creator in Netflix or whatever, you're not going to have a very good time if it's made very clear to you that there are certain things you're allowed to say, certain things that will get you a contract and certain things that will basically make you persona non grata. Um, and even, you know, as, as you're saying, it's, a, it's an incredibly upper middle class industry um, to the extent they're concerned about that. You know, they just might have an attempt, as you say, to make themselves superficially diverse, but that won't necessarily change the kind of class composition of, of um, what they are. But that's going to be, that's a fundamental barrier as well, because their outlook is fundamentally influenced as well by their sort of class background, mm-hmm. by their educational experience. If Even if they had some sort of scheme to bring, you know, more working class people into those industries, they would have to keep their mouth shut unless they perfectly mirrored the values of that particular section of society. Or published publish books like Shuggy Bane, where it's like, oh, come in and tell us about how awful your life is and how, <laughs> exactly. how shit your experience is and then go away and shut up. Well, that's Jack Monroe cookbook. <laughs> no, exactly. That's, that's exactly it. You're either, you know, you're either allowed in because you just so happen to have, you know, you might be from a working class background, but you've ended up at, a, at Oxbridge anyway and, and you have taken on those particular values. Or because, yeah, you just sort of ordered in to do a kind of Angela's Ashes sort of routine um, <laughs> to make everyone feel guilty for five minutes. So all of this is downstream from that, I think, in so many respects. Um, so much of the culture war is downstream from that kind of clear kind of like class and values division. Um, and I think at Netflix, as much as anywhere else, you're starting to see them start to reckon with that. But again, I've just come back to that point of this is a long time in the making. Um, it doesn't just extend over the course of the past five years. These ideas didn't come out of nowhere. You know, we at Spite's been writing about them for a very long time. And that's the much trickier thing to get to grips with. You've got a lot of kind of um, Gen X liberals who are wondering where the hell did all this come from when it was quite clear that this has been building for 20, 30 more years, you know. 
So the uh, trial of the century is wrapping up. Lawyers have given their closing statements this week in the so-called Wagatha Christie case. Ella, do you want to explain quickly what this case is all about? It doesn't take too long to explain, luckily. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, two wags, that's wife and girlfriends of footballers, Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy are in a spat because uh, Colleen Rooney suspected a number of years ago that someone was leaking stories that were personal to her to the press. She did a little bit of sleuthing on Instagram and um, revealed that she thought that the person who was uh, snitching on her and selling stories to the papers was Rebecca Rebecca Vardy. And she did it. The name Wagatha Christie came from her reveal, which she did. It's dot, 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 Rebecca Vardy and the world went mad. And so Vardy has now taken her to court Hmm. on libel charges. Um, and in what has been <laughs> days and weeks of spectacle and ridiculous evidence of bitchy text messages and you know, quite good one-liners, actually, as it happens on <laughs> both parts, on both women's parts, um, it looks like, you know, who knows what will actually be ruled on, but it looks like it might have been Rebecca Vardy's assistant who then dropped a phone in the sea in order to withhold it from evidence. And it's ridiculous. Basically, this is a ridiculous libel case. Uh, everybody knows what Spike knows, thinks about libel law. We think it's an affront to free speech. But it's become this kind of uh, spectacle. And in becoming a spectacle, it's produced some rather distasteful um, reactions to it. So there has, I wrote about for Spike this week, this kind of sneering attitude on Mm. behalf of some commentators, one particular article in The Telegraph, which went pretty far on it, um, describing them as fishwives and saying, you know, it's, it's, you know, disgusting while people are dying and they should be giving money to charities for them to be walking in their lemon boucle suits and trotting around in their heels and wasting money on um, such a charge. And, you know, you do have to think, well, no one said that about the Depp and Heard, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case, which is essentially about two rich people shitting in each other's beds and getting drunk and being incredibly trashy, in my opinion. <laughs> and that's treated very seriously. But when it comes to, you know, Rooney, who's, you know, daughter of an Irish bricklayer and Vardy, who used to be a nightclub promoter, and, you know, they've got particular accents and they, mm. you know, they they wear particular clothes and they flash their money. That's really trashy. You know, the whole thing is a ridiculous, you know, it's like the same thing as watching Love Island. There's nothing serious to be said about it. But I think the people making the most spectacle of themselves are those turning their nose up at those two women. Tom? No, it's the chortling has been really insufferable all the way through. Those little key moments like when, again, you're talking about the phone being thrown into the North Sea and uh, I think it was Clean Rooney's lawyer saying it was in Davy Jones's locker and Rebecca Vardy turns around and goes, who's Davy Jones? And everyone cackles Mm. and all the rest of it. There's been that really obvious undertone to it. Um, There was, you know, even just suggesting, isn't it ridiculous essentially that you've got these two wags, you know, in the Victorian wood panelled surrounds of the Royal Courts of Justice. It just shows that there's nothing that the commentariat kind of loathe more than working class people with some money. That's Mm. just, that's been the the story of many, many years in this country. And this just being another opportunity for that often hidden prejudice, as you wrote about Ella, to just slip out into the surface. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.